It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Here we are rolling on Forward Progress. It's an absolute pleasure. Not that Kirk's not here, but my man Amin is. <laughs> uh, we tend to go to the bullpen to my partner from NBA Insiders. Sirius XM NBA Radio, Sunday mornings, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, uh, whenever we have an opportunity uh, and an open seat here on the weekly roundtable in this confluence of race and sports, Mr. El Hassan, welcome back. No, thanks for having me. Call in the right-hander for the bullpen. Here I come, come on, baby. We're throwing strikes every time we get together. A little bit later in the program, uh, one of our favorites, uh, Greg Taylor, the executive director from NBA Foundation, will swing by. New round of grants, a really great partnership connected to the HBCU Fellowship Program. We'll talk about all of it uh, a little bit later in the program. Uh, Myers Leonard might be making his way back uh, to the association, at least uh, it looks like uh, uh, post-anti-Semitic slurs and really doing work. And we'll talk about that with Myers. Uh, He might have an opportunity to try to make his way back, but we'll begin with history. Uh, And as we begin the two-week walk to... uh, the big game. I think we're allowed to say Super Bowl here on Series XM. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is, there are some stations that don't pay for such things, but I think <laughs> with an NFL uh, uh, partnership, that, that's probably yeah. okay. Uh, but for the very first time in the Super Bowl, which is happening during Black History Month, uh, two Black quarterbacks playing in the game, Mahomes and Hurts, and I will be very clear with you, Amin Hassan. while I knew this to be true, there's still a thing in my head that said, what? Really? <laughs> it was a, it was a real it was one of those moments where I was like, oh yeah, I guess that is still yeah. a thing. Wow. Yep. Yep. And I had to explain this to one of my younger colleagues why it was a thing. I said, man, it wasn't too long ago where just a black quarterback. I'm not talking about the Super Bowl. Right. I'm saying a black quarterback was like a unicorn, seen a unicorn in the wild. And so it should never be lost upon us, the idea that, you know, this is a sport that has traditionally been very um, exclusionary mm. on so many different levels, whether it's coaching, whether it's management, whether it's playing the playing of certain positions. And quarterback, of course, is the glamour position in football. So... You know, it was not lost upon me at all that we're having two black quarterbacks in the Super Bowl. I It was something that I, I said, yep, I knew it immediately. Like, this has never happened before. And it's incredible to see happen at the highest level. These are not only two, you know, great players, but also these guys might be the one and two for MVP this year in the NFL. And at least in the case of Mahomes, in the conversation to perhaps end up being the greatest to ever play the position, uh, at least so far throughout this stage of his career. So it's exciting and it's encouraging. And hopefully, again, like my father says, I pray for the day where 
you can be a mediocre black quarterback and we won't even think about it, right? It's a, because the black experience is about being superlative, right? right? In order to have these opportunities, you have to be superlative. You can't be average. The trip is number three for Patrick Mahomes. First trip for Jalen Hurts. Uh, matter of fact, Mahomes is the third black quarterback uh, to win a Super Bowl uh, when uh, the Chiefs took care of the Niners in 2020. Uh, it's interesting because, and I, I want to get into Hertz in a moment because he has an interesting story. With, with Mahomes, somebody said this to me. So we'll 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 have our little mixed metaphor that connects to our, our day and night jobs covering basketball. Patrick Mahomes, Steph Curry of the NFL, in the sense of oh, yeah. changing mm -hmm. the way you even see the position, the way that you can do things. Listen, my man Bernie Kosar was throwing sidearm back in the late 80s in Cleveland. But Bernie wasn't moving fast, right? I right. mean, it was there, there just is so much that Patrick sees that wouldn't even like what gets you yanked off the field with most coaches, right. let alone being able to complete passes the way he does and hobble around on one leg and all the things he's doing now. Such a strong corollary, uh, Jax. You're absolutely right. Whether it's the style of play that for most players to get them yanked off the field or yanked off the court, but when these guys do it, you say, well, that's that's part of the experience, right? Mm -hmm. Steph Curry from 35 feet with 12 seconds on the shot clock. There's no one who's going to question that shot, much like uh, no one's questioning Mahomes running out of the pocket and throwing it sidearm because that's the only way he can get it to the receiver. Uh, but the similarities go on from there. I think the idea that the wild amount of success, you know, Steph Curry went to the finals four years in a row, um, excuse me, five years in a row, they went to the finals and uh, six out of eight years or whatever it was, four titles. I mean, the success, right. the, the, the unquestioned amount of success, right? Much like the Chiefs over the last four years, three Super Bowl trips and a, con and a conference championship, uh, you know, trip about, what was that? Three, four trips ago. Uh, it's the success is there. They're both the second generation of professional athletes. Patrick Mahomes' father was a major league right. uh, baseball pitcher. Steph Curry's father, obviously, longtime NBA uh, guard. There's also the while touted, not exactly heralded coming in, right? Neither right. of these guys were supposed to be what they ended up being. Hey, little pro, yeah, he's a good pro. But no one saw Mahomes being this, and no one saw Steph Curry being this either. So uh, it's a, it's an amazing comparison. I hadn't even thought about it, Jax. This is all me just those connections <laughs> making in my mind as soon as you said it. That's what we do. That's what we do. The, the Born Moon, uh, the Hall of Famer, uh, who obviously went through a period of being the lone wolf and obviously mm -hmm. had to start in Canada to even mm -hmm. be taken seriously to get, yep. as a prominent uh, QB1. Uh, tweeted that he's so proud to see Jalen and Patrick as the first two African-American quarterbacks to face each other in the Super Bowl. And I think Warren's path, uh, very di very disconnected from a time standpoint, but there's something to it in the sense of Jalen Hurston. His whole story is this feeling that I feel like he's always had to wait. You know, it's like at mm -hmm. Alabama, it was, I'm, I'm, there's somebody else that everybody has a flavorful dynamic for him. I'm going to get that opportunity because of the injury back when Tua was there, but it wasn't like he was the guy. He gets to Philly and they're still transitioning 
out of what they thought they wanted at quarterback and who won the Super Bowl for him at quarterback. And but here he is. And and I never felt like this there was this overwhelming pounding outside of being a competitor of look at me, what about me? But each time he got his opportunity, and now at the highest level in the biggest game in North America, <laughs> here he is. I mean, I mean, if you think about it, if you go back to Alabama, as you said, right? Mm-hmm. And he's the man. He's the starting QB on the best team in the country, right? And at that point, he's probably thinking, "Yeah, my career is going the way I envisioned cool. it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna win a national championship. I'm gonna go pro. I'm gonna be a high round pick, and you know, do pretty much what he's doing right now." But he gets hurt, and he gets, in essence, Wally pipped because Tua comes in. Tua is the backup. He comes in, and he's electric. He's amazing, and they win the national championship, and then he's named the starter the next year. And so for Hurts, life takes this really sharp tangent away from what the plan was going according to plan was. And he has to transfer. And you think about all that uncertainty. Between that moment of being um, kind of anointed to to having to dig it back up from the dirt and climb his way all the way to the top and beat out guys. And and now here he is standing. And I'm sure there's got to be an immense measure of satisfaction that Jalen Hurts feels knowing that the world went to crap on him figuratively speaking and relatively speaking in his career and but he managed to come out of it even stronger this it, it could be really one of the great super bowls of recent memory uh, when you have uh these two quarterbacks a explosive offense obviously that uh Mahomes runs uh Jalen Hurst has a really really awesome offense as well but that defense tends to be smothering taken from me I use them every week, okay? <laughs> I get 13 to 15 points for those Eagles every week. But um, what we're experiencing from this historical standpoint uh, in Black History Month with – and here's what's cool is that, um, you know, Doug Williams is still here to see it, right? And, yeah. and see the fruits of all of this rollout from – his experience in 1988 um, to this 35 years later, as he said, what a treat for him the night before. As he gave these quotes on Monday. Mm-hmm. For me last night was a humbling experience. It was something that in my mind could have happened a long time ago if a lot of Black guys were allowed to play the position and to see it come to fruition. It's like a dream come true, to be honest with you. So here he is with this idea, like, man, what are we waiting on? Why can't this happen? Circumstances of teams as well, right? Like teams that could have made it and just didn't because uh, of winning and losing and what happens in competition. But uh, it's got to be a different level uh, of joy and pride that he has. Absolutely. And, and again, this all comes down to opportunity. You know, think of, again, now it, it is more commonplace for a black quarterback to come out in the draft and to play quarterback in the NFL. But Jax, you and I are old enough to remember they're going to move you to a different position, right? 
you come out as this scrambling athletic quarterback. Oh, right, they tried to, Lamar still had to deal with that, they right? Did, yeah, Lamar Jackson. That's right. Was it Bill Polian was the one that said, you know, he he'd, he'd make a good uh, DB or something like Ugh. something of that nature. Man. So I mean, again, that's why you know if you're listening to this, you're like, what's the big deal? Like that's the big deal. It's not just like, hey, guys weren't getting the starting job or guys weren't getting signed or drafted. That's one level of kind of exclusionary practice. It's another thing when they say you are excellent and at this position, at this sport, and they say, hmm, I'm going to play you over here. Like think about Charlie Ward was the Heisman Trophy winning <laughs> quarterback of the national champion. And they said, hmm, you would make a really good DB. You think about that. It's just insane. It's just Let me go get this guaranteed money, a, NFL. Good day. Yeah. It's like, I don't need this. I, mean, I don't need to, I don't get out of here. to do this. So, again, you know, I I don't fancy ourselves as old men, uh, Jax. We're getting there. But s- sometimes, yeah, when you put things in that kind of perspective, it's like, no, I mean, we've seen the change a lot over the last, you know, 30 years or so. I'm only half kidding here. But for Doug Williams being the grand poobah of black quarterbackness, for lack of any phrase whatsoever, uh, <laughs> he does still work for the Commodores once his Redskins that he played for. To send a text to an Eagle congratulating <laughs> him. Yeah. You you are you you are a child of the yeah. NFC East. You tell me. Because I could not root for those Bengals. I don't care. The Ohio and all that stuff. People in Cleveland try to convince me as a Browns fan. Oh, no, you should root for the Bengals. You better get out of here. <laughs> so this, 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 again, if we're just laying down big dealness of the historical aspect of this, yeah. a senior advisor from the Washington Football Club slash Commodores, Commanders, I apologize. Commanders. Uh, yeah, I'm about to say, I'm about to say, uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, apologies like, to, I, I, to. I, five minutes ago. I said that I like to fancy you and I are not old men. Yeah, I and just then, went straight. And then you just put Lionel, Lionel, you put Lionel, Lionel Richie, Richie in. Yeah, yes, <laughs> that being said, the Commanders and Eagles getting together in a love affair tells you what a big deal that is. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's this is one that you know one of those moments that transcends allegiances and all that. It's it is truly a moment in history. Let's take a break before I uh, cross-reference any more music groups. <laughs> when we come back, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure being in this program and in step with the creation and the proliferation of NBA Foundation. Their executive director, Greg Taylor, will join us next, talk about a great new program that they're starting, an association, as they roll out their next round of grants. It's Alhassan and Jackson on Forward Progress. Stay there. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. Thanks for rolling with us as we continue here on Forward Progress. One of our favorite guests and one of our favorite programs He's the executive director of NBA Foundation. He is Greg Taylor, and he's back because there's another round of dough doing wonderful things and also a really great partnership. Let's start there. Uh, as we tape this on Wednesday, uh, the NBA announced this really cool connection, and it feels like it has a couple layers uh, between the foundation and the HBCU fellowship program and now bringing in uh, the Children's Defense Fund. Yeah, first of all, it's so great to be back uh, with you all. 
one of my favorite opportunities to talk about the work with you gentlemen. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. You know, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, as you mentioned, Jason, we're so excited to be going into our second year of the MBA uh, or of the HBCU fellowship. As I think folks know, uh, this is our, the MBA and the MBA Foundation's commitment to provide you know, meaningful employment opportunities and professional development opportunities for graduates and undergraduates of historically Black colleges and universities. Um, we're going to go from 60 young people last year to 75 this year. So we're all about growth. We want to expand our, the, the reach of young people that we're working with. And this year, we're really excited that we're going to now we are announcing a partnership with the Children's Defense Fund, a longstanding civil rights organization, youth uh, advocacy organization founded by the esteemed Marion Wright Edelman uh, over the years, uh, led by an incredible leader uh, in Starsky Wilson, and really have brought the Children's Defense Fund in to provide that in-depth uh, professional development, if you will, for the fellows uh, as they go out into market and represent their teams. We know that our young people need opportunity around, you know, uh, job skill development, exposure, opportunity, networking, and the like. And the Children's Defense Fund is stepping into that role to actually be the kind of organization behind the scenes planning uh, that really important component of the program. You know, one of the things that was really exciting about working with Children's Defense Fund is their partnership with a group called Fearless Dialogues. Fearless Dialogue is an amazing organization that really is about growing uh, social justice leadership in young people, particularly Black youth. And what moved us was that Fearless Dialogue actually views social justice leadership development as a professional development outcome. Right. It's not just resume building and how you present yourself in an, in, in, in an interview, but it's also how you lead and contribute and develop a, a voice to be a leader in community. So anyway, I'll stop there. I could go on and on, but we're very excited about uh, the program and the partnership with the Children's Defense Fund. It is, in fact, our largest grant. The NBA Foundation's largest grant to date is going to this effort. And it just underscores our commitment to the incredible work. That, that's incredible news, Greg. Uh, I'm curious, you, you've now been through this for a year. What did you guys learn in the first year of this program? And what was the feedback from the inaugural cohort back to you as far as their experience went? Yeah, again, I mean, great to see you. A couple of things. Uh, we, we just got incredible feedback from the fellows. Uh, they come from all walks of life. You know, a hand, you know, a number of the different HBCUs across the country. And and really what it was is about, you know, but for opportunity and exposure, we know there's incredible genius at the HBCU level. And so just the notion of what was it like and what is it like to work at the league? We call it the business of basketball. People see the game on the court, but don't often understand all of the business opportunities behind the scenes. And so one of the biggest, uh, I think, bits of feedback we got was about exposing them to ticketing and legal and creative and communications and all the different roles, I think, was deeply appreciated there. And then lastly, I would just say, you know, one of the great tenets of the program is that the fellows are actually placed out at our 30 our teams. And so what we had to do was, you know, as feedback is to prepare those 30 teams to welcome in our, our fellows. And so we often talk about getting the young person ready for work. 
We also got to get work ready for the young person. And mm -hmm. so we had lots of dialogue with those team hiring and managing partners about what does it mean for this fellow to come in? What's a meaningful work experience? What should you expect? And that back and forth is, I think, the heart and soul of the program. Uh, uh, just a tremendous success first year. And we're ex excited about the year two to come uh, this summer. Greg Taylor is the executive director of NBA Foundation with us back here on Forward progress. We got to start. We got to get you a robe that notes that you are the leader in in guest spots on the program. Without a doubt, let's go. It's gonna be silk. There'll be embroidery, so it's gonna be awesome. Uh, talk to me, and, and it may be too soon. So, if you're anticipating that great uh, fellowship program story, or it's already happened, uh, where there's already been uh, a, a connective uh, transition from fellowship into employment. Uh, I know that's definitely fully part of at least some part of the goal and dream of all this. Uh, has that happened just yet, even in the early stages? Yeah, absolutely. We're so excited out of that first 60 young people. Um, 11 of those students were able to gain uh, full-time employment or an ongoing ex internship experience with that team. You know, we absolutely we're standing in the gap of the notion that we can't find talented uh, black youth that can be leaders in these organizations. And I think that the fellowship is meant to model is not only is there talent and genius on the campuses of these HBCUs uh, across the country, as I've mentioned, but actually really helping young people through a, stru a structured kind of professional development career exposure process like the fellowship does result in incredible talent being placed. And so we're so excited to those teams who recognize that talent, who poured into these young people, who provided meaningful employment opportunities and actually gave, you know, awarded full-time employment to these uh, to these folks. So we, we want every young person to be converted into a full-time employment opportunity, whether it's at our teams or in the career choice of their choosing. A career field of their choosing, but we're very, very excited with that uh, initial ratio of, of, of you know, eleven of those young people being hired out of that first cohort. Uh, it's a standard we hope to achieve year over year. Greg, I I'm curious. I'm curious. You talk about you know them graduating, so to speak, the program and finding their their landing spots elsewhere. But as far as entering the program, what's the process like in terms of sifting through? Because I have to imagine. The, the interest must be huge yes, for this yeah. for a spot in this program. Yeah, it's a very rigorous process. We're so excited. We just went live uh, several weeks ago in terms of the uh, the the application pool applicant pool for the next year. So the program will be uh, be live summer of 2023. And I think in the first week we we're well over a thousand applications. You know, our goal is to go as high as four thousand uh, in terms of folks being interested in. And so the the interest and in the uh, is without question. You know, folks have to go through a, a screening process. We look at the merit of the application itself. Uh, in many cases, one of the things we're able to do with our teams is to be really clear about what is the employment opportunity, whether you're going to be in ticketing or accounting or legal. And so we try to match career interest, if you will, and the like. 
Um, once we have culled through those numbers down to the core list, there's an interview process. All of that uh, has to, to happen. And it just allowed us to identify, you know, an incredible cohort of 60 young people last year. We'll do 75 this year and probably cap it at 75 year over year. But that's the process going through. And again, anybody hearing my voice in this interview, uh, the application is open. It will be open until uh, later in February. I think February 20th, I think, is the deadline. And so if you're interested and think you are one of these young people that can fill a spot, I would encourage you to go to nbafoundation.com and you'll see a link to the HBCU fellowship and, you know, give your best shot. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you. NBA Foundation moving into its third year of creation and this charitable fund dedicated to driving economic opportunity for Black youth. We could stay on this association, our entire phone call, but I do want to spend uh, some time locked in on all the other work that you're going to be doing in February, of course. Black History Month here in the United States, as you have uh, 31 grants totaling $12 million uh, to 34 organizations. Yeah. And here's the thing, to walk us through the challenge it is, because I feel like you do a great job allowing organizations who have received money in the past to maintain contribution while you're continuing to find new places to plant uh, these fantastic seeds. Yeah, a couple of things. So we're really fortunate that we have um, we're, we're mature enough to be clear that we know and it's important to award renewable grants, right? We know that the issues around uh, uh, limited educational opportunities or limited employment opportunities have been um, sustained over time, unfortunately, particularly in under-resourced communities. And so we know these issues aren't addressed fully in just one year span. We gave one year grants initially because we were just a new philanthropy. Right. And so now that we've got a little bit of momentum under our belt, we know the value of those renewable relationships. And so we're really excited that a little over six point nine million of the grants that we've just awarded will go to organizations that we've had a lasting relationship with, you know, like the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, an incredible organization that works with court involved youth. And it helps them to gain employable skills so that they can write their lives and be the leaders and contrib contributors that we know they are, despite having made a, a poor choice in the in the past. You know, I fundamentally believe you're better than the worst thing you've ever done, right? And so we've got to give that opportunity to those young people. <clears throat> excuse me, who have been in, in those tough situations. You know, we have an incredible organization in D.C. called So Others Might Eat Some, and it's an organization that provides uh, a career exploration and opportunity in the healthcare, hospitality, and building trades in their industry for young people in D.C. So we know that it's um, you you got to be involved over time. Um, we certainly can't award everybody multi-year grants. We have limited resources but uh, a really rigorous uh, process for those uh, grantees that have really done a great job. We're glad to to be continue to be in relationship and support over time. So those are renewables, and then the balance, as you share, Jason, uh, we've got a number of new grantees. We're always trying to undercover, you know, that next wave of incredible uh, nonprofit partners that are promoting economic opportunity for Black youth. And so we're in Philly, we're in Milwaukee, we're in, you know, we're working with all kinds of young people. So we're excited about that. Greg, I know in nonprofit work, there's always something <laughs> that you need, right? 
so beyond money, obviously we wish there was more money to give out and, and help more of these great organizations, but beyond money, what, what is the thing that you feel like you guys need the most? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, there's obviously such tremendous need in the communities that we are focusing on. I think where we're going now with regards to that is we're looking to create more formal, more structured, more resilient, if you will, partnerships between the NBA, the te our teams, nonprofits with a longstanding history of preparing young people for the world of work and companies that are in our market, right? Think about it as a pathway. What we want to do is there's a young person out there who's interested in some type of, of, of employment opportunity that is just beginning their journey around education and workforce development, skill development and the like. Can we create a pathway without barrier? As long as that young person puts the effort in, Partners are going to be there. Nonprofits are going to be there. Resources are going to be there. So the need and where we're going is to try to more formalize that, those relationships, if you will, between the NBA, nonprofits that are in our markets, companies that are in our markets that want to hire these young people differently, and those young people that are on that track towards a better economic opportunity for themselves. I think if we can formalize that, I mean, I think we could go a real long way. And, 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 and the great thing about the NBA, the resources we have to give out are tremendous. And thank you to our governors for their generous $300 million contribution over 10 years. But I'm also really impressed with the, the the kind of influence to convene that the NBA has to change the conversation. So what would it mean to organize conversations at the community level between nonprofits and companies in the league to say, what do we need from each other differently to commit to the development of Black youth differently in a way that results in uh, those young people having a real viable shot at economic opportunity? I think that's the next need, and that's the conversation that we're going to enter into. So, you know, that's where we are, and 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 uh, and, and that's the the kind of 2.0 of our work uh, as we go into year three. Greg, we always appreciate the generosity of your time. Before we let you out of here, uh, what's on the horizon for you all? You you, you and your crew are always innovating, <laughs> new collaborations, yeah. new ways yeah. uh, to elevate uh, the Black community, Black youth specifically. Uh, give us a little peek, if you if you don't mind. Yeah, so excited. We just hired two tremendous uh, professionals, uh, Sabrina Gregg and, and Richie Pena. So we want them to hit the ground running to help us be even more effective and efficient in what we're doing. And I think going forward, it's about partnering with those companies that really do commit to helping prepare and, and, and place young people differently. So what's on the horizon is we're going to go and be aggressive to go after those companies that want to join this mission. Uh, really honored to, you know, with Google's recent contribution of a million dollars to our effort. Google is an amazing partner for us. We think there are other Google type companies out there that really want to commit to what we're doing. We're going to go find them. We're going to try to find a way to partner with them all for the benefit of economic opportunity for our young people. That's what's next for us. And, uh, you know, when we, when we, when we gather again, as I'm sure we will, We'll be hoping to be able to share some real progress towards uh, those that roster of groups and companies and nonprofits that want to do this work differently for the betterment of our young people. That's really where we are, and that's our mission, and that's what floats us in our work. That's why we keep bringing you back. We love all the work that you're doing. <laughs> Greg Taylor is the executive director of NBA Foundation. More information, visit nbafoundation.com. Thanks, as always.
Always. Appreciate you all. As we continue here on Foral Progress, we turn our attention to the National Basketball Association. Uh, we all know the story of what uh, went down in the association as it pertains to Myers Leonard and his anti-Semitic slur, and that man has not played in the association since. Might that be changing? We'll discuss that when Forward Progress continues. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Appreciate you staying with us all the way through Forward Progress. We turn our attention now uh, to the story of Myers Leonard as he seeks a NBA return, if you will. He hasn't played in the league uh, since using an anti-Semitic slur during a video game live stream. And what I've noticed in keeping an eye on this, because Myers Leonard was a part of the Miami Heat, of which I am a part of the broadcast team when all this went down, and I've kept an eye on him and the family and the growth of the family and his own personal growth, I mean, and it's... Not the same, but similar in watching the emergence of Heat Hall of Famer, Tim Hardaway Sr., who made uh, some homophobic slurs. And that really put, for a while, the brakes on his opportunity to get into the Hall of Fame uh, and then truly was a deterrent. And then as people realized a true and humble and tangible approach to learning and becoming um, a, people always say a different person, but I just say a, a better and broader person. Enlightened. Uh, that that's I feel like what's at play here with Myers. My my short time covering him, huge personality, zeal and zest for life, easy to deal with. Uh, but this was inexcusable, and it's why he's basically been. Um, it's not officially barred from the league, but you know, moved and cut and then no entryway back in. Jax, I believe this is to be one of the biggest inflection points in society today. When someone makes a mistake, when someone does something bad, I should say, Mm -hmm. where is the line of accountability versus retribution? Meaning Myers Leonard uses a an anti-semitic slur he in essence loses his employment as a result he gets traded from miami to uh oklahoma city who promptly waive him uh he is fined by the league he is suspended i believe for for a week for his words and then he is basically shadow banned from rejoining the workforce it's not an official NBA proclamation that you can't sign Myers Leonard, but teams know when someone's radioactive mm. and, you know, it, just stay away, particularly if the talent level is not through the roof. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's how it is. So he's clearly suffered consequences. At what point through his demonstration of desire to learn, desire to change, desire to atone, do we say, He's paid enough dues on his punishment. He is now allowed to rejoin. And and I say this not just about Myers Leonard, but there are countless examples throughout society of faux pas of the verbal variety. I'm not talking about people who are, you know, demonstratively 
uh, you know, uh, prejudiced. Yeah, pounding I'm talking away about, at it repetitively. Yeah, right? right. I'm talking about people who have a moment in time where they did the wrong thing. When do we say enough with the punishment? You are you've 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 learned your lesson, or do we say that? Because sometimes it feels like the attitude is that there is no coming back. You made this mistake. You have to live with it forever. Which, depending on the severity of the mistake, sometimes can have a very counterproductive uh, kind of result. Let me, let me give you an example sure. of what I mean by that. In the year 2000 or 2001, the New York Times Magazine had a a writer embed himself with the Knicks, and uh, he was he went to chapel meetings with some players, and during one of those meetings, Charlie Ward said some unequivocally anti-Semitic language. David Stern at the time was asked, you know, when the story comes out and it's a big, it's a big, uh, it's a a big deal. It's a big news story. Um, And David Stern is asked, what are you going to do about it? And while Stern condemned Charlie Ward uh, for what he called religious zealotry, he did not suspend him or you know seek any other uh tougher penalty right and when asked why why didn't you penalize charlie ward for these anti-semitic comments david stern said ward would have been better off not to have uttered his uninformed and ill-founded statements but i do not wish to enhance his sense of martyrdom by penalizing him mm. right in essence a couple layers there, by the way, right? Like, what he said was abominable. But if I unload all of the legislative power I have to basically crater him in his career, I only embolden and fuel the hate-filled rhetoric that, you know, those words represent. And so in order, in a weird way, in order for Charlie Ward to really understand what he did was wrong and to atone and to change and to grow is to be almost to be afforded in that moment the mercy, I don't know if that's the word, of we're not going to throw the book at you. I even take it another layer because in Christianity we're so taught about the highest level, the greatest story ever told, right? The highest level of martyrdom and trying to be Christ-like in that mode and stern understanding that theology, that philosophy, Mm -hmm. staring you right in the eyes. I'm not going to give you the pleasure. Mm -hmm. Like, Mark, what? That, that, again, even from the grave, the man still has this ability to give you the remembrance of what you can do that's more powerful than even the finger wag or, yes. or or the banishment. So let's take people through this right now. I mean, because I think there's something interesting here 
when you think about Myers, he, he played in the NBA last in January of 21, so two years ago. Mm-hmm. He was suspended in March, so a couple of years later. He, he underwent ankle surgery because he was injured um, and mm-hmm. not really available to help a lot that season, uh, but injured and, and, and had surgery in April, uh, suffered nerve damage as a result of that procedure, um, which is the tough part because all that's happening outside of the umbrella of the right. NBA of, te- of team care. Yeah. Right. So he spent time rehabbing a shoulder. He had this ankle over the past two seasons and there's no pro ball. There's no elevated care for a guy that played almost 450 games in the association. And remember on top of that was the standing for the anthem in, in, in the, the bubble, the bubble. COVID yes. run. Um, that was explained as, you know, supporting, uh, I believe it was brother who was a Marine, um, which, okay. Like I, I had to work through that in my own organization and in my own mind. And again, he's not a hateful dude from my right. personal relationship with him and his wife and knowing his parents. And so I do work oftentimes from my experience, good or bad with someone, but I also watch what you do. Yes. You know, Cause you can, you can come to me and recognize, I deserve your respect I, that I have earned the position I find myself in as your colleague. And, and I could get a different vibe from you, but my, my look at him throughout these two dynamics felt divergent. And so when word came down that he could get a workout with the Lakers, uh, I didn't freak out in the sense of like, man, how are they going to manage that? <laughs> They're the Lakers. They, they, they manage a great deal of things, but it was more of man. That might be the only place where he could find his way back in because there needs to be a whole lot of things going on. Not just his return as the isolated focus. Yeah. You know, it's funny Jax to go back to what you started with, Mm -hmm. which was mentioning hall of famer, Tim Hardaway senior, who Mm. also played for the Miami heat and uh, his, uh, again, he said home, outright homophobic words on air. I believe actually on the show that I'm at right now, the Dan Levitard show. <laughs> was back in the terrestrial and, days, yes. Yes, back yeah. when it was radio. And I think Tim Hardaway Sr. is the best example of when we talk about atonement and when is enough enough. Because he didn't just apologize and he didn't just do the penance of donating to a charity or meeting with members of a, you know, civil rights organization for the LGBTQ community. He did the work. He immersed himself in that. He went above and beyond and truly learned not as a, as a tool of punishment, but as a tool of self-education, he wanted to become more enlightened about this. And he did. And went from someone who said these awful things to an ally, a huge ally to the LGBTQ community. Now, I always thought that he got done dirty by the establishment, Mm -hmm. given how far he'd come on the topic. He went from, he didn't just go from negative to neutral. 
He went from negative to positive to someone who adds positively to the conversation and really embraced that. And the establishment was like, yeah, but you said those things. And, and, and that was a case I felt of now we're just punishing to punish. There's no rehabilitation. There's no uh, you know, acknowledgement that people grow and learn and in turn teach others from their own mistakes. It's like, no, no, you did this mistake and you're out forever. And it took a, you know it took until last year pretty much for him to finally be acknowledged and awarded with a spot in the Hall of Fame, which was long overdue. I look at Myers and I read about what's happening with him. And I get that same vibe. This is someone who is really, really doing the work. Not because he wants to get a job, but because he realizes something that was a blind spot in his life that needed to be rectified. And he's done that. And at some point, we have to stop holding that against him. As despicable as it was, this is someone who has tried to show that he's atoned. Sought counseling from two rabbis in South Florida, has also met frequently with Jewish organizations and has learned more about anti-Semitism. I, I always put myself in the spot of the faulted uh, individual or community. Would that be enough for me? What would I be calling for in a moment of ignorance, in a moment of bigotry, is atonement and learnedness. And that's what's been met here. I, let's wrap up this subject. And, I'll give you a little more room in a second. As NBA spokesperson Mike Bass said, quote, since his use of a derogatory and unacceptable term in 2021, Myers Leonard has been held accountable and has dedicated considerable time and effort to understanding the impact of his comments. He has met with numerous leaders in the Jewish community and participated in community programs to educate himself and use his platform to share his learnings with others. That is an official statement from the association. That's a huge deal mm -hmm. in a step toward Myers Leonard uh, checking the boxes of requirement to be acceptable. This will never be forgotten, never should be. But right. there's, there's a path here. By the way, uh for someone who's not in the league, the league right. for the league to make that kind of statement for someone who's not one of the 450 players, some odd players who are in the league. But I, I think the key to all of this is sincerity. Yeah. The belief that this person sincerely has changed. is isn't just say, okay, I'm sorry for saying that thing. Yeah. I'll never, it's not a, let's just get through the formalities so I can get back to work. It is a sincere change. And I think we should always be, open and up, uh, accepting of people who sincerely have changed a toxic behavior. Special thanks to Greg Taylor, the executive director of NBA Foundation for swinging by, getting us up to date on the great programs happening and coming. And uh, to you, Amina Hassan, I'll say this, as my departed uh, father would say in moments like this, John Theodore would look you right in the eyes and say, come back when you can stay longer. <laughs> I don't think he ever meant it, but he said it. <laughs> I always thought it was a jab. I'm like, do you mean that? It didn't seem like you enjoyed that time. But with you, my man, you know it's always a pleasure. Thank you for filling in for Kurt. Thanks for having me. Amino Hassan, Jason Jackson. Oh, and let us not forget the wonderful coordination of our producer, Brunel Brown. Folks, thanks for swinging by. We'll talk to you next time on Forward Progress.
Forward Progress is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.